Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you here this afternoon. Uh, this afternoon, we're going to take a little bit of time and look into some of the history and the remains of history that have survived to this day. Um, but I want to make just an introductory comment about uh, some of the things we're going to look at. And some of the things that I am drawing from today um, come from several different resources, but one very recent resource is this book here. You may have seen this advertised at different um, Christian booksellers, as well as Answers in Genesis, Evidence for the Bible. And um, I want to make a comment on the evidence word, evidence for the Bible. Did you know that the Bible is true regardless of whether or not we find any evidence that it's true? And it's really important for us to keep that in mind and consideration as we study evidences and as we find these things in history. Um, and sometimes we find things in history and it's really exciting and it's really interesting. Um, but sometimes, as we're actually going to experience today, um, we find some contradictions. Or really what's interesting about what we're going to learn today is not so much contradictions as we're going to learn about incomplete accounts. And I'll tell you a little bit about that as we come to it. But it's very important for us, as much as we may get excited about the things that we may find buried, um, that there's not really much more to get excited about because we actually already have the perfect record inspired by the Lord God and preserved for us to this day. And, and yes, it is exciting to find buried in the dirt pieces left over from what's recorded, um, but we don't need those pieces buried in dirt because we have everything that we need in God's holy word. And it's really exciting. That's one reason why I'm excited about the harmony that you have and not so much the harmony, but the, the reason we can have a harmony. Um, it's great when the Lord has given us one account and one record of things, and it's, and it's doubly great when he's given us two or three records of the same event. And uh, it just really is incredible to look at Scripture and be able to learn it um, in that way. And then you have all this other stuff that we've dug up, and it makes it very, very fascinating. So what I wanted to do uh, today is to summarize some of the finds that have been discovered in connection to King Hezekiah. There's actually a lot of things about King Hezekiah that have been preserved. Let's start off here. Okay, you all see this timeline here. I wonder if you've seen it enough that you could reproduce it. I'd like to bring your attention here this, this afternoon to a few little details that we don't talk a lot about. But if you look at the bottom of this screen here, you see these, these numbers here in that little line. I know you can't see it real well, but um, that there is, um, is the, the dates, and it's very helpful to us to see those dates and to recognize that these are not legends or myths that are tied to no history. When we learn about these kings, David, Solomon, and Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the split kingdom, these are historical events that can actually be put onto a timeline and compared with other records that we have from history. And so I'd like you to just bring your attention to that. And so if we continue on, you know the stat count, right, of the divided kingdom, and then how the kingdom divided, and it's going to do the same thing to me it did this morning. What did you do to fix that, Ethan, this morning? You had to restart PowerPoint? Let's see if we can just, oh my, it won't do anything. 
So you did like a, a forced restart? Let's try this again. So we have there. Ah, it's working. <laughs> I've been procrastinating updating this computer, but I think it's being told I need to. So we are going to learn about some of the history that takes place here in the reign of Hezekiah. And as we've zoomed in before, we can see some of the dates there. Uh, you can see these are the 700s. This is the 8th century B.C. when Hezekiah was king there in Judah. And um, one of the main events of his life is that in the very first month of his reign, what did he do? He called the people back to worship the Lord. He purified and cleansed and rebuilt and sanctified the temple and reinstituted the worship of Jehovah because there had been a problem in the land, and that was is that people were worshiping Jehovah, quote-unquote Jehovah, but they weren't really worshiping Jehovah. They were worshiping a form of Jehovah that they had made up. And it was Hezekiah who was calling the people back to what had actually been given to them, the word of the Lord, given to them. He also was one who was very influential in the publishing of God's word. Because see, when he came to power, Ahaz had built all throughout the kingdom, such as we see here, um, little sanctuaries. And um, this, is, this is one of the famous ones, and you see their ruins. It actually has, archaeologists have, have found this sanctuary in the southern part of Judah, and they have taken the stones and the little walls that you see, and also that altar that you see. It's not real clear in this picture. We can maybe turn off some more windows, but we'll be okay. Um, right here you can see an altar. That was an altar that was modeled after the temple in Jerusalem. So this is a mini little, a mini little temple that had been built where they had worshipped supposedly God, Jehovah, but it was nothing like that. It was filled with all kinds of pagan and godless rituals. Well, when archaeologists discovered this sanctuary, it had been destroyed, and as they, they calculated the different artifacts left behind and the different layers that had been left in the pieces of trash, basically, that had been left in those layers, they were able to determine that this sanctuary had been destroyed sometime in the 8th century, very likely by Hezekiah had torn down. And what's fascinating is that this isn't the only one. 
archaeologists were finding in the same time period. So they basically are able to identify time periods. This is different than like when they try to calculate rocks that they find in the, in the Grand Canyon. Um, they're actually taking things that have hardcore ties to dates and chronology like coins and pottery and so forth and able to tie it to history. They're not just taking it and subjectively dating stuff. So in these ruins are finding things of that time period and that's how they're able to date things. And so here they have this one, the whole sanctuary that was destroyed. And then you go to Beersheba, which is one of the southernmost cities. And here you can see as they've taken and reconstructed from the torn down stones of another altar from another Jehovah modeled but pagan worship center. And again, it was destroyed. But yet here these things are being destroyed and there's no other reason they would have been destroyed except for the fact that Hezekiah ordered them to be destroyed. There's no other invading army or anything that did anything like this, except for the fact that Hezekiah ordered their destruction. And so as the archaeologists have found in different cities throughout southern Judah, they have found these sanctuaries and altars being destroyed. Just as the biblical record records Hezekiah is ordering to be done, and just as we learned with Rabshakeh this morning, who was mocking the Jews saying, your God Jehovah, Hezekiah has totally ruined your worship because he's gone around knocking down all of your, your altars. So how is Jehovah going to be on your side when your Hezekiah is going around knocking down all of his altars. And so here they found some of these altars, and their timing of their destruction is about the time of Hezekiah. Well, how about the guy himself, Hezekiah? This is an interesting, this is a seal that has been found, and it is a seal um, of actually Hezekiah. And this isn't the only one they found. They've actually found several of these. And some of them had been found, and there was some question about their authenticity because somebody found them and then just decided to sell it. Oh, here, look, I found something. I'm going to sell it. And so there were some concerns. Oh, they might be frauds. They might be fakes. But then there were some additional archaeologists, even just within the last few years, who have been doing some study and research and excavating, and the official archaeologists found some. And it's like, oh, so this seal wasn't made up or forged. This is what his seal actually looked like. And they've actually found several of Hezekiah's seals um, throughout Jerusalem and actually in other places in Judah. So some of the fascinating parts tied to Hezekiah's early reign. And, but one of the most exciting is actually in Jerusalem. And here is a satellite image of Jerusalem. And this was my wife and I's, the, the, the blue lines you see there is the walking path that Evelyn and I did on our ninth wedding anniversary when we were in Jerusalem. And um, that was a great day. We walked all over Jerusalem. Just to give you a little bit of a perspective here, Right here, that's the Dome of the Rock. So here you can actually see kind of the temple walls and the outlines of the original temple in this area here, and there the Dome of the Rock sits. Um, we never did get to go up to see the Dome of the Rock. Uh, we got to see it, though, in a lot of different perspectives. But you can see we walked all over Jerusalem. It was a really interesting day, starting off early in the morning and going through. But I, what I want to show you on this here is that there's one spot where we lost GPS signal. So what I was doing everywhere we went in Israel, I was carrying a phone that had no cell signal, but every 30 seconds it would log my GPS location. But when we were in Jerusalem on this particular day, there was one part where it couldn't log it. And when it can't log it, it just records that last location it gets, and then it draws a straight line to where you reappear. 
See the straight line here? Right here, there's a line, the, all the swigglies of us walking around, and then it comes and it's a straight line over to here. That's Hezekiah's tunnel. When we went down into the tunnel, I couldn't get GPS coordinates anymore. And so that tunnel weaves in this area here, beginning up here um, in the, in the, near the city of David and coming down here to the pool of Shalom. And, um, but that was a fun day. We walked all over. We started off that morning at the Temple Institute, which no tours ever go there. And actually, our tour didn't go to Hezekiah's Tunnel either. This is because we went on a tour, and then we stayed a few extra days to do our own thing, to see things that the tours don't see. You know, they can't bring a bunch of tourists down into Hezekiah's Tunnel and get them all wet. Um, but we could do it. And um, also, you get to the, we got to see the Temple Institute where they have rebuilt, not just replicas, but they've actually reconstructed um, vessels to be used in what they anticipate to be the next temple. So this is the pure golden candelabra that they've reconstructed there at the Temple Institute. And again, so we got to see the Dome of the Rock, never got to go up on it, but this is overlooking it. But one of the biggest highlights of our trip in 2017 was to be able to go down into Hezekiah's Tunnel. We talked about this in Bible Hour this morning. They'd gone throughout the region outside of Jerusalem. They had stopped up all of the springs and the wells, and they had buried them and stopped all the water. And then this particular one, they had taken it and they had rerouted the Gihon Spring so that it would come into the city of Jerusalem to provide water in the city of Jerusalem. And it was quite an amazing feat as they took the water over in this region here. There's other tunnels, by the way, actually in Jerusalem. There's several other tunnels. One is called the Canaanite Tunnel, which is a tunnel that was actually carved into underneath the, the Jebusite city of Jerusalem when it was still a Jebusite city. And it was a tunnel that had been, been carved out. They don't, as far as I know, know what and why it was carved, except for perhaps some defense military purposes. Um, but it's there, and Hezekiah kind of used that as a basis to start his. So you actually go down into the Canaanite tunnel, and then at one point in the Canaanite tunnel, he had carved out to get to the water of Gihon Spring to tap into it, to basically steal the water from flowing outside the city of Jerusalem and to flow it inside. And, and so that's what he did. And so all this area you see here of blue is this tunnel that, that he had dug. And it's incredible. Us here as Hoosiers in Indiana, we live in flatland. So, you know, we think, okay, so you dig down six feet and then you just go, right? Well, if you look at this, it's actually, it's not just a, a go down and on. It's all limestone. And you can see the city of Jerusalem starts down here and it goes up the hill to Mount Zion at the top. And so it's this mountain basically that's going up here. And so the spring is down in this area here outside the city walls, and they tap into it, they, they reroute it basically underneath the city of Jerusalem, and they bring it down into the lower part of the city of Jerusalem. Actually, this here, you know when Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley? Here's the Kidron Valley. Over on this side here, you can't see it in this depiction, is the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is right here. This is kind of taken from a little bit south of the Mount of Olives. And, and so they had, they had basically gone way down. I mean, this is all solid limestone here. Way down into this mountain and cut that out and carved, carved this tunnel 
um, all the way through here. And remember, they had to keep it just right so that the water would flow, so that they could also go down into it to service it, so it couldn't just like go up and down and up and down where you'd get yourself drowned or where there would be places where it would, would fill up. So they had to keep it just so that where the water level was, it would work out just perfect. And so here you can see some of the steps going down into the tunnel. And here, it's not as perfect of a picture, but you can see the water. And the water did, it did, it did go up, you know, water seeks its own level, right? So the, the, it, went, it did go up and down. So we were in there, sometimes it would just be ankle deep, but um, we'd get, we got wet all the way up to our mid-thighs. So there were places where it was, it was deep water. And you'd walk through this tunnel. So this is our adventure crew that day. My brother, his wife Katie, and Evelyn and I, and we went in there. And so here you can see one little area where the water is down there, and just very ever so narrow. And people are like, what were we wearing a hat for? There was no sunlight down there. Oh, I'm so glad I wore a hat. Tim and Katie, particularly Tim behind me, every little while go, oh, ow! Because he was hitting his head on the, the ceilings, you know, you didn't know we're there. But for me, I could feel it start rubbing against my hat and go, oh, I never bumped my head once. And so it was kind of a joke for Tim and I. He made fun of my hat the whole trip. And, um, and here on this day, I walked out without any bruises on my head. And, and so it's a really intriguing, it was really, of, of all the different parts of the um, adventures we were on in Israel, this one was one of the highlights, and it was really special because so many of the sites in Israel are either locked up in a museum and they don't even show you the real thing. Like you go and you go to the, you go to the shrine of the book, you get to see the Isaiah scroll, right? No, you don't get to see the Isaiah scroll. Even though they have this massive building built for it and they have the whole scroll. I mean, it's just, it's just magnificent when you walk in and then you find out it's a replica and the real one's 300 feet down in the earth underneath in another cave they've dug and drilled down in so that it's bomb-proof. So you get to see so little real stuff um, but this one's like, oh, we, just, we get all the senses. You get the smell, the touch, the feel. It's all there. And you get, the, get wet. You know, that's fun too. And it was really intriguing though. But it's, it's also an incredible thing because for, for years and years, centuries, people would read about Hezekiah's tunnel. But nobody knew where it was. It wasn't actually discovered until the mid-1800s. And um, not that it had needed to be discovered because it was built, but it had been lost to the point where some people questioned its ever existence. And uh, they found it. And um, it's really, really an incredible little trip. And in fact, actually, actually after they found it, um, it became a place to play hooky from school. So, and I think it was 1865, there was a little boy who decided he was going to skip school and go play in Hezekiah's tunnel. Oh, I, 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 I could be that little boy. Skip school and go play in Hezekiah's tunnel. Um, and so, he goes down there, and he's got his little lamp, okay, not a flashlight. He has some kind of a little light. And he's going through the tunnel, and he's just playing, and he's hiding down in the tunnel so he doesn't have to go to school. And lo and behold, he comes to a spot on the wall, and he's playing, and he sees that it's got an inscription in it. It's got these carvings. And um, I don't know the whole story. I don't know how he got in trouble for playing hooky because he had to tell somebody he'd been down there. But he had told somebody he had seen this, and he brought him down into Hezekiah's tunnel, and there, sure enough, is an inscription from, guess who? 
Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Now you know what they do? What you see there? You see how it looks like it's outlined there? That's because they chiseled it out and moved it to a museum. So there's the inscription in Istanbul Museum. But they put a replica in its place there in the tunnel. And basically, this is an inscription where Hezekiah actually recounts how they did the tunnel, which was really incredible because there were a lot of archaeologists in the mid-1800s who were like, so how did they do this? And it turns out that they had used a technique that actually was used by miners in the 1800s of where they would bang on the stone with an instrument like an axe, and then they would listen for the echo, and then they'd bang. And that's how they would follow the, they would follow the, the noise of the banging. So they basically started moving in the direction. They used math and so forth to get the basics of it. But then when they actually came, it was really funny because we're in the middle of this walking, and for the most part, the thing goes straight. But then all of a sudden, at one point, it's like we're going this way, and we're going this way way, and we're going this way, and what it was is that those, those guys axing or hammering, and they were looking, and they were hearing, they were finding each other, and they were moving back and forth, and ta-da, they found each other, because they were actually digging it or carving it from both directions, and so this is the inscription that was in the tunnel here, and they ended up chiseling it out and moving it to a museum in Istanbul, Turkey. And so that pool goes, and again, I said it goes to the, uh, the Shiloh, Shiloh pool. Remember, that's the pool where Jesus, the, the, the story of the angel who stirred the water and healed a man, and then Jesus ended up healing a man there. Um, and something interesting about archaeology, here you can kind of see where I'm just coming out of it. So just right around the corner there is where the tunnel goes, and this is where it just kind of opens up. And for many years, this area here, they used to say, this is the pool. This is the pool where, where Jesus healed that person. Um, but this is one thing interesting about archaeology is that things change over time and they learn and discover more things. And it turns out that actually that famous um, pool is further downstream. And they didn't find that until just a few years ago. I think it was 2015, a little before, where some people were working on some sewer lines and the workers were busting it open and all of a sudden they find steps. And so when you find anything old in Jerusalem or anywhere in Israel, you have to stop work and you call the, the um, I forget what their name is, but it's an agency that basically oversees any antiquities. And um, so stop the work. And they come in and they start excavating this and turns out there's this massive, I mean, this is just a little puny little part of it, not even a part of it, but just a, still a part of the path and the route to it, massive pool. And a whole section of it is under a mango grove. So it's like under 30 feet of dirt. And so this whole one section that belonged to the city, or the city had the easement of it, they've excavated it all out, and they've got the stairs coming down, and they come down all the way to the pool. But then the whole rest of the pool is owned by some church, and, um, and the church refuses to let them, them, them excavate it. They say it's our mango grove, and it's been buried for thousands of years. It can stay buried for th another thousand years for all we care. And so archaeologists are really frustrated, and, but at least they're respecting property rights. So interesting, interesting um, place again here. So here's where that tunnel drops out. And it's really, it's, again, it's, it's so fascinating because you go down in that tunnel and you think about it. Now it's just a tourist attraction. It's, it's something there to, to really just glory in, in the history of it. But in the days of Hezekiah, this was a big deal. 
this was the main source of water for the entire city of Jerusalem that Hezekiah, in his wisdom, had built in anticipation of what Sennacherib would do. And um, it's really exciting. So here you can see another picture. This is Evelyn and I there. Um, coming up on the Mount of Olives on the Kidron Valley, there you can see the wall up there. Oftentimes you read in the New Testament up the pinnacle of the temple. There's the pinnacle of the temple. It was the highest wall in that one corner that dropped off into the Kidron Valley in this area here. It, you can see another picture of it here. The length of the tunnel. Very good question. I should open my notes. Um, the tunnel, it was discovered in 1838. It's 160 feet below the surface, and it goes for 1,748 feet. So 533 meters. So it's no little tunnel. Yep. Good question. Here you can see a picture. So that tunnel is running un in this mountain, basically. Um, so this is what you see on the right-hand side is Mount Zion. That's Mount Zion. And what you see here where I'm standing is on the ascent to the Mount of Olives. So you have the Mount of Olives and you have Mount Zion. And here sat the temple and here sat the Mount of Olives. So when Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he went down into this valley the Kidron Valley, and well, coming from Jerusalem into the Kidron Valley up into the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was an olive um, press. And so that gives you a little bit of perspective of Jerusalem. And so that tunnel is in that mountain, that limestone mountain. We saw some other things. We actually got off track here. So some of you Notre Dame fans, here you go. We went to a market, and uh, there, you've, there you've got the Fighting Irish in Hebrew. See them? And get them on a t-shirt. See, this is a t-shirt here. And you see, it's right there next to the Israel Defense Forces. And don't worry, America, Israel's behind you with one of their F-16s that they bought from the United States. I think that's an F-16. Is that an F-16, Elijah? Where'd Elijah go? Looks like it. And we finished off that day, remember all that circling? Um, actually walking the medieval wall. Jerusalem, modern-day Jerusalem, has a medieval wall going around it, and we got to walk on the top of that wall, and um, Tim and Katie decided they were too tired, and they missed out on it, and they sure did miss out. We got to see lots of great things from that mountain. But let me turn to something else. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah, Micah chapter 1. You know, in Bible Hour this morning, we learned about that general getting sent to Jerusalem. Does anybody remember where Sennacherib was, the king? He was in a town called Lachish. Well, we, don't, we not only have the record of the fact that Sennacherib was fighting against Lachish, but we have a prophecy from Micah announcing that it would come. So, remember Bible Hour this morning, we learned about the fact that the Lord has promised Hezekiah that the Assyrian king will not be able to take Jerusalem, and that he will defend Jerusalem no matter what. We all know that, right? And the question we're at right now when we stopped, is God going to keep his promise? Because it doesn't look too favorable right now. 
especially when we consider what's going on at Lachish. Now, you might see, I don't see anything. I just see a hill. You're right. All you see is a hill. What this actually is, is a ramp up to Lachish, a ramp that Sennacherib built. All that dirt coming up this hill was moved in by Sennacherib to capture this city built on a hill. So Lachish was a fortress built up on a natural hill fortification, meaning that, you know, king of the mountain, you, was, they had to build a ramp to become king of the mountain in Lachish. And that is the remains of Sennacherib's ramp. He built a ramp up to Lachish. And it's interesting because just as God had said that, that Jerusalem would be preserved, actually in Micah chapter 1 and in verse 13, there's a very poetic description of the fact that Lachish will be crushed. And it says in Micah 1.13, O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Here we find Micah, about the same time Isaiah is telling Hezekiah, you'll be spared. Lachish, this town, has kind of become a fortress of, yeah, Hezekiah, you can do what you want to do, but we're going to keep doing what we want to do and following the ways of Israel, the pagan Israel, northern kingdom, which has just been carried away captive. And here God pronounces a judgment upon them. So here now, again, some people I mentioned earlier this morning that some gainsayers like to say God didn't really keep his promise to Hezekiah because there were over 40 cities that Sennacherib destroyed in Judah, Lachish being one of them. And so God didn't keep his promise to Hezekiah. Well, yes, he did because God didn't make a promise that he would spare all of Judah's cities. He made a promise that he would spare Jerusalem. And in fact, he had made prophecy here that there was going to be a judgment of Lachish. And that judgment came by Sennacherib, and he built up this big wall here. And when he came back to Nineveh, where he made it the capital of Assyria, he carved a whole room of murals depicting his victory over Lachish. And you can even zoom in on this, and you, and you can't see real clear, but it's, it's all these different parts of the warring and the fighting, and I even cropped some of it out because it's kind of grotesque too. Some of it, you know, just they, they, they did some terrible things to the people, and he depicted it. In fact, um, what's interesting here, let's see if we can do this. I have, they, they have actually found... In Nineveh, they found these tablets. I'm going to see if I can move this up onto your screen. Oh, it's being ornery. There it comes. 
this is a virtual tour you can take right now at the British Museum in London where they found this whole room. You see the walls of this room? This is from Sennacherib's palace in Nineveh. And when he came home from his conquest of Judah, this room he built depicting battle scenes and his whole campaign against, um, against Judah. And it's, it's a really, really interesting room to look around in. I haven't looked around in all of it, so I can't vouch for what's all there, but I mean, you can see just a lot of all the different depictions of what's going on here, of the, um, of this room. Well, in this room, this whole room was built, again, for Sennacherib to boast and glory in, um, in his victory over Lachish. Now, somebody tell me, what is weird about the fact that he boasts about his victory of Lachish? Apart from this today, I'm kind of curious, apart from me talking about it today, how many of you have ever heard of the city of Lachish that you had any connection with? Just, just nothing that most of you, not more than just the fact that you read it when reading your Bible. So why does Sennacherib dedicate this whole processional glory room to his victory over Lachish? What's so special about Lachish? I mean, if he won over Judah, you would think this would be a victory procession over what city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, right? That, that would make more sense. If Sennacherib won over Judah, this victory procession would be over the capital, right? And at the triumph end of it, you'd find the king, you know, there. It's kind of interesting because you have other depictions of the kings. He did one of himself with the king of Egypt, and I showed it to you several weeks ago, where he's holding a little, a little string that comes down and attaches to the nose of the king of Egypt, and he's dragging him with a hook. And he depicts that one. But where's the depiction of Hezekiah with the hook in his nose being drugged by Sennacherib? Or the boasting of the city of Jerusalem being destroyed? Well, some of you already know God promised that he would defend the city of Jerusalem, so of course it can't be in this victory room. Obviously, you know ahead of the... Well, you don't know ahead of the... You, do, you, you know ahead of the story only because you believe God's promises. The question in the days of Hezekiah is, did people believe God's promises? So here we have actually an evidence from Sennacherib of the historicity of the Bible because he tells about his victory over Lachish, which the Bible talks about, but he conveniently treats that his victory over Lachish, which God did prophesy, um, was the climax of his Judah campaign. And in his whole victory hall, boasting of his glorious victory over Lachish, there's no mention of Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? So let's see. Oh. Let's move on here with Lachish. Another interesting thing from Lachish is you see these, um, this victory hall, these murals, and all of their depictions of his victory. He's also, in his victory wall, he has the depiction of these slingers. See those guys with those slings? And guess what? At that ramp at Lachish and all around the city of Lachish, do you see on the right side 
those are in the British, I think it's the British Museum, um, might be the Israel Museum, um, are the sling stones, which is kind of interesting because whenever I picture slinging a stone, you know, I pick one like this big. Well, there's the slingshots, the stones that those guys are slinging. They're like as big as my hand. And they would sling these stones. And, and so here, Sennacherib has depicted his, his slingers um, conquering Lachish. And sure enough, they go to Lachish and thousands of these, these sling stones are found around the ruins of, of Lachish. But there's something else that's very fascinating about Sennacherib. And you know what? Many of you have seen it. It is Sennacherib's prism. It's actually housed in the Oriental Institute in Chicago. It's actually called the Chicago Prism. And if you've never been to the Oriental Museum, here it is, a very small little museum, but it's got some really incredible and valuable treasures. And in my opinion, one of the most interesting is the, the Chicago Prism or Sennacherib's Prism. They've got some other really cool stuff there as you can see here. And again, I told you, some of you have been there. See those little people? See yourself, Nathan? You remember, do you remember that? Not really? Some of the others of you remember. I think Rachel was in that picture there, but you had a weird look on your face, so I decided not to just put it up on the big screen. And, and so this is, this is Sennacherib's prison, prism. And it's very, very interesting um, little prism. Um, it tells all kinds of his victories. It tells all kinds of his stories. And one of the things that's very interesting about it is that it talks about Jerusalem. And in fact, I'd like to read for you um, what he wrote here in this prism. Sennacherib. Sennacherib. He, he, his record claims, As for Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke, I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and to the countless small villages in their vicinity, and conquered them by means of well-stamped earth ramps. And battering rams brought thus near to the walls combined with the attack of my foot soldiers, using mines, breaches, as well as sapper work, I drove out of them 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small, cattle beyond counting, and considered them booty. Himself, Hezekiah, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. And that's the end. You know what's interesting? Is he's telling the exact same account that the Holy Spirit inspired to be preserved in the most authoritative records of Isaiah, 2 Chronicles, and 2 Kings. Except for the fact that he didn't finish the story. He ended his story with Hezekiah shut up in his royal city like a bird in a cage. And you and I, if you know the story, know that happened. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we're going to learn about next Sunday. 
Sennacherib has sent his commanding generals, three of them, up to Jerusalem to harass and to terrorize the city, to threaten them. I mean, your ears tingled when you heard some of his speech, right? Mine did. Joel even had a hard time reading that. It's just, this guy's, this is trouble. Well, it was all there to threaten the people, to cause the people to just throw open their gates because 46 other cities have fallen. The most rest of Judah has become refugee-destroyed cities. And they're now in Jerusalem. Well, all of a sudden, this general with his great host leaves, just like Isaiah said he would. And that's when actually there's some interaction with Egypt. And it's funny because the archaeologists and some of your modern experts go back and say, oh, Hezekiah hired Egypt. And somebody help me. I haven't found any biblical evidence that Hezekiah ever hired Egypt. Um, but nonetheless, Egypt comes up, and Egypt comes to try to interfere in all of this matter, and that's when Sennacherib takes care of him and puts the hook in his nose and drives him off to captivity, and he ends up sending a letter. Now, you still heard that letter? I'm going to tell you what was in that letter. It was a threat. It was a threat, and not only a threat, it was a blaspheme against the true living God, Jehovah, saying, you can't stand up against me. You won't be able to defend yourself against me. We will crush you because your God is just like all the other gods. And Hezekiah took that letter. He brought it into the temple. He laid it out before the Lord. And he basically pled with the Lord, defend your name. This is on you. Sennacherib, a short time later, conquered everything else, laid to waste Lachish. And he comes to Jerusalem and he besieges it with over 150,000 soldiers. And he has Hezekiah trapped as a bird in a cage. His record agrees with the biblical record. They're both in agreement. And we know the biblical record is inspired. It's true. But what's really interesting is that's where Sennacherib leaves it. And then as he continues his story, it's just as if he goes back, and that's when he builds this great victory hall of Lachish. Again, why isn't it the victory hall of the capital, Jerusalem? I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to come back next week, or you can read ahead, and find out what happens. How is it that Hezekiah is locked up in his own royal city as a bird in a cage? And yet, and these two records agree, but what is there more? What is there more? Which is interesting here because some gainsayers will look at this. Most don't because most read it and they're like, (laughs) some people will look at it and say, see, the Assyrian records don't match the Bible records, so we need to question the Bible records. But what's actually funny about it is that the Assyrian records and the Bible records match perfectly It's just that the Assyrian records didn't want to tell the humiliating part. And so they left it out, which actually, by inference, confirms the biblical record. Everything about what archaeology has found actually indirectly confirms the biblical record by an argument of humiliated silence. Their victory hall in Lachish actually proves that they didn't have victory over Jerusalem. Why didn't they have victory over Jerusalem? He never says why. So we can then thereby conclude that the biblical record is true, for it tells us what actually happened. All of these different pieces of just the total 
leaving of the way the story is, again, all traces back to confirming what the biblical record is. And I know some of you are on pins and needles. What's going to happen? Well, I'm going to tell you. God keeps his word, and he defends Jerusalem, and he preserves Hezekiah just like he promised. Just like he promised. And he did it in an amazing way where it was a battle that Hezekiah fought simply through prayer. We're going to learn about it next week. But I hope that as we've recounted through some of these things, you know, we have all of the situations in Lachish and all of the, the evidences laid forth there in Lachish. There are also of the fascinating um, tunnel, the water conduit that Hezekiah had made and what that had resulted in, the fact that it's still found today. And looking and seeing that we have found his signets and found evidence of altars and sanctuaries being destroyed. All of these things are incredible, amazing evidences that the biblical record is true. But you know, we didn't need those to know that the biblical record was true. Many of these discoveries, especially if you were to look through this book, um, this book does, by the way, require discretion um, in reading or looking through it. It's got some things that need edited. Um, it's, it's fascinating to see them that for thousands of years, these things have been buried. And yet, for thousands of years, we have had a reliable record. And it is simply being not verified, but just illustrated um, to us for God has inspired the original. And so when we think back and we think of trusting God for our problems in our times, we think back to Hezekiah. Hezekiah was not some fairy tale, legend, or myth to motivate people to be spiritual. He was a real man, a real king, who lived in a real world with real enemies and real battles, left behind the evidences of it. And that should encourage us, not confirm for us, the confirmation is God's word, but should encourage us that God's still true and faithful and we can trust him and know he will keep his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing to us this history, and may we learn from it and be encouraged by it. Lord, I pray that as archaeologists, those who believe and those who do not believe, that in their search for things might also search your word and that your Holy Spirit would work. And we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so use your word in leading many to faith in you. May each of us here, regardless of the evidences of the archaeological finds, renew this afternoon our hope and joy and faith in you. We thank you so much for your word, its reliability, its trustworthiness. May we read it. Memorize it, meditate in it, apply it, and obey it. That you might be glorified through us as we walk humbly with you, our God, and find rest that only you can give. And so we give ourselves to you in this week. We commit ourselves to you. May we go forth in your grace. Amen.